one of the greatest fears in our society? Now, some of you might say, spiders, snakes. It's actually public speaking. Public speaking. So many people fear speaking in front of others. Anybody have a guess why public speaking would be on the top of the list of things that people are afraid of? I mean, I think of spiders are not cool, snakes are not cool. Some of you might like those, I don't. But what about public speaking? You know what public speaking gives you an opportunity to do in some of our minds? An opportunity to fail. That you might say something stupid that people are going to remember for the rest of your life. Possibly. I think as a young child, I was reading a, a joke to my mom. And you remember those highlights magazines? They, they were like the kids' magazines. And I was excited. I was a young reader, and I'm excited I'm able to read. And I said something about the elephant's tongu. Well, can you put that one together, what that word is? It's a tongue. Well, I very joyfully read out tongu. Well, guess what? To this day, I hear about a tongu. It doesn't leave you. Some of you have the same experience sometime in your life where that same thing is brought up over and over again. And because of that, one of the greatest fears is public speaking. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. I hate public speaking. And God, in his um, humor, made me a school teacher where I had to be in front of people and a preacher. But this is not where I want to be. Why? For the same reason that most of us don't like public speaking. Because you're in front of a group of people and you can fail in front of everybody. It's a time that you can publicly fail. Question this morning I have for you, though, following that up is, do you think it's possible to learn from failing? Well, it's actually a big part of life, isn't it? You can go back to, to a little child who's trying to learn to walk. They don't just get up and walk. They get one step up and on their bottom. And one step up and on their bottom. And then maybe one step and then down on their face. And they learn to walk. Or maybe a little bit more mature, learning how to ride a bike. I was not one of those people that just got on it and just rode forever. It took some failing to learn how to ride a bike. And on and on it goes in so many different areas of life. I want to ask you this question then. Do you think God could use our failures for the process of sanctification, of making us more holy? God can use all things, even our failures. You know, failure comes in all of our lives. And for some of us, failure is debilitating. Where we have such a fear of failing again that we just shrink up and we won't even try something again. We're afraid it might happen again, so we just stop. And this is a big issue in our society. We have people who are completely crippled by the idea of, I might fail. This morning, I want to look in the scripts with you, and I want you to look at something that I've titled Overcoming Failure. Because in every single one of our lives, there's going to be the opportunity to fail. Not that you chose that one. It's just going to happen. There's going to be failure. But what happens when it comes to spiritual matters? You know the people like, you know, I've just failed at following Christ, so I'm just going to give up. We're going to look at overcoming fear, and I'll give you a little clue on the inside. It's not necessarily about our faithfulness. It's about his. 
So when we look at Scripture, ultimately we have to ask the question, what does this say about God? You know we always want to say, what does it say about me? It's kind of like looking at a group photo. Who do you look at first? Yourself. We often do that with the Scriptures. Like, well, how does this deal with me? The question should be, what does it say about God? So overcoming failures we're looking at today, we're going to be back in our text in John. We're actually opening up the last chapter in John's Gospel. Chapter 21, so if you want to start turning there, you can. A very interesting chapter, because last time we were together, we concluded at the end of John chapter 20, which seemed like the close of the chapter. John writes, look, here's why I wrote it, that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in his name, you'd have life, eternal life. Seems like it should end there. But yet, we have more. And as I thought about it, this might not relate to all of you, but my family, excluding me, but my wife and my kids love Marvel movies. You know, these movies with Iron Man and all these different things. I fall asleep. It's a great nap time. But they love them. But the best part of the movie for everybody in the audience is once the movie comes to an end, credits roll. And the people in the theater wait there and wait there until all the credits are done because then they give one more nugget. One more quick scene that everybody's so excited about that I don't understand, but they're all excited about it. But it's one more nugget, and I think that's what John has done here. He's given us that one more nugget at the end of this gospel. At the very beginning, the first 18 verses of John, we had a prologue, and now we have an epilogue, one at the end. And that's what we're going to start looking at today. So if you have John opened up, let me turn to it. John chapter 21, we're going to read the first 14 verses. We read, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were together, or and the two others of his disciples were together. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going to go fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So again, this is now the epilogue. This is the, in addition to, John has given us some more information. Up to this point, we know that after Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to the disciples. There were 10 of them. Thomas wasn't there. And of course, Judas was long gone by then. When Jesus appeared, they all saw him. He revealed himself to them. But then Thomas said he wouldn't believe unless he did what? Put his hand in the holes, his hand in the side. And so eight days later, Jesus appears to them again and presents himself to Thomas and says, Thomas, go ahead. And Thomas does, says, my Lord and my God. Now here we have in chapter 21, it says Jesus revealed himself again. It starts with saying after this. Basically, we don't know how much time has gone by. Time has come. Jesus is now is going to reveal himself again. And it says there by the Sea of Tiberias. Interestingly enough, the scriptures refer to the Sea of Galilee with four different names depending on the audience of what they called it. This is the Sea of Galilee, which for some of you in about five weeks, Lord willing, you will be on the Sea of Galilee. Those of you that are going with the Baptist Foundation to Israel, you will be on a boat on this very sea, which is pretty neat. So, Jesus is there. The disciples are by the Sea of Galilee. We're in verse 1, looking here. It says, Jesus revealed his way in this way. There are seven disciples now. And they're all together, these seven. Notice who's listed first. Peter. Who's listed second? Thomas. I think this is interesting in this order because as we look at just overcoming failure, what has Peter done not too far in the past to this event. He's denied the Lord three times. Even though he said, I will go with you, I will be with you, I'll even lay down my life for you. And denied him three times. Thomas then said, no, I'm not going to believe anything until I see it. And then we have the rest of these listed here. So they're in the area of Galilee, and Peter decides, I'm going fishing. Maybe have a clue of why he might be going fishing? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But why might he be going fishing? We have two good reasons. Well, there's a real good reason. He was a fisherman. But why was he a fisherman? It was for a living. Could be. And the second is, got to eat. So he's going fishing. The others say, hey, we will go with you. And they got into the boat. And they go and they toil all night long. Now remember, he's a fisherman. James and John, we learned, are also partners with him in his business before he came to Christ. They're all professionals. They know how to fish. And yet, after toiling all night, how much did they come up with? Zero. Zuko. Now, what I want you to keep in mind, and those of you that were in Bible study this morning, we talk about God being the creator of all things and that he is in control of all things. Even those fish in the Sea of Galilee. They come up with nothing that night. Now, I want you to consider this. Jesus, for three years, has been with these men. And all that time, apparently, Jesus is providing for their needs. 
We don't see them ever having to go off to go fishing for food or, or anything else. Jesus is providing. Now they're on their own. I need money. I need food. So what do they know to do? Go fish. It's what we know. Let's return back to our livelihood. So follow me. Pay attention to this. First thing I want you to see here is there's a pitfall of self-sufficiency. A pitfall of self-sufficiency. We're going to go back and do what we know how to do. Instead of being dependent upon Jesus, I'm going to do what I know. And here they go, and they're headed back, and they come up empty. Well, Jesus in advance had prepared them and had taught them about something like this. He said this in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said this. He said, I am the vine. He said, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Listen, he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Now, here they are, the disciples. Jesus is not around them. They think, you know what? Let's just go back and do what we've always done. We know how to do that. And they go back and they completely strike out. They depend on what they know how to do. And I will tell you this, Christian. If you fall back on what you know how to do, expect failure. Because you're not your own anymore. You're now Christ. His desire is that we would grow in him, in trusting in him, in being dependent upon him, and not our own self-sufficiency. That our sufficiency would be completely in him. So here they are, out on the Sea of Galilee, professionals, and they come up with nothing. He's timed all this. He's planned this all out. In Galatians, we get this warning in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What does that mean? It means we think that we're so capable of all these different things when in reality, we're to come before our gracious God, submit ourselves to his authority in all things. Proverbs, we see a warning. It says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Man who's wise. Hey, I know how to fish. I know how to get this done. We have forgotten who has created the fish, who oversees the fish, who directs the fish where they're going to go. He totally threw them out. Here, the fool is like, I can do this. I got this. I often say that if you say I got this, hold on. If you're like, oh, I got this, brace yourself. If you are a Christian and you think in your own self-sufficiency that you got this, be prepared because the Lord will gently remind you, hopefully it'll be gently, it might be abrupt, but that he's got this. He's got it. The warning here that the opening is that the Christian can't fall back on being self-sufficient. His sufficiency must be in Christ. His dependence must be on wholly trusting in Christ alone. We continue in this narrative. We're going to see the blessing of humble obedience, the blessings of humble obedience. Look, let me start in verse 4. Just as day was breaking, so how long have they been fishing? All night. All night long. It says, Jesus stood on the shore. 
Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Stop there. It's going to tell us that he was about 100 yards away. Now, 100 yards, probably pretty good distance. I don't think my eyes are going to pick up who's 100 yards away, but I don't think that's what they're inferring here. I think every time it says Jesus revealed himself, there was something about his glorified state that he got to reveal himself to people. Even the women that were at the tomb, he had to reveal himself. Or on the road to Emmaus, he had to reveal himself. Here again, they look and they don't recognize him. It says, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. Okay, um, I'm looking at, I know Phil is a, a fisherman here. I don't know if any of you fish. But if you fished all night long and you've caught nothing, what do you think your attitude might be at that point? If they're fishing because they're hungry, now they become hangry, right? And the most obvious question is asked of them. They don't have anything. Jesus knows that. And he asks them this obvious question. He's causing them to self-reflect. And by the way, for the believer, self-reflection is a great thing. To stop and say, wait, I have been doing this all night, and I came up empty. So Jesus pointed out to them. So he says to them, remember, Peter, James, John, professional fishermen, he says to them after they've been fishing all night, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. That might go through a professional fisherman's mind when someone tells him that. Think about it. Really? <laughs> you got to think about this. Just that little boat that Christ's rule and reign over all creation had those fish on one side. Think about that. He tells them, cast it, or cast it to the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Here's what is amazing to me, church. They didn't give him lip. They didn't sit there and go, what does that guy know? We don't even know who that is. What, what does he know? We've been fishing all night. We've been doing this for years. This is how we made our livelihood. It says... So they cast it. Okay, what just happened? Because this isn't natural what just happened. The natural man would have gone, I don't know who that is, but I've been fishing all night, and I'm not going to throw it to the other side. I've been doing this all night long. But Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. There is something about an unction of the Spirit that is different here that they would obey. They would obey. They cast it, and now we're able to haul it in, or not able to haul it in, excuse me, because of the quantity of fish. It says, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. And, and I looked up this word, and, and nowhere did I find it meant he was naked. It means he had like his working undergarments on. He was fishing. But he throws on his outer garment. He throws himself into the sea. I can imagine him there like waiting and trying to swim, trying to get to shore. He's trying to get to Jesus. It says, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. And you can see these guys trying to row, trying to get, they couldn't get it. It was too heavy. 
to get in. They're dragging this thing behind them, and they're rowing in. That's about 100 yards. My question is, how did the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we believe was John, the writer of his gospel, how did he know it was the Lord? Like everybody else in the boat, they all saw the same thing, did the same thing. He said, it is the Lord. Peter doesn't even question it. He just, I'm out of here, I'm going. Takes off. Turn your Bibles back to Luke. So it's one book to the left if you're in a printed Bible. Turn back to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he went and he called the disciples to follow him. Here in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we read, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, being Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Guess what? Another name for the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias, Gennesaret, Kinneroth, they're all the same place. This sea, it's a freshwater lake, basically. It's about 13 miles long, about 7 miles wide. A freshwater that comes down from the hills. It says, He saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking... He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Almost the same thing has occurred. Almost. Big difference here is in this one in Luke chapter 5, the nets were breaking. In John chapter 21, the nets are fine. That's going. We'll talk about that shortly. But what is going on here? So, it is the Lord, John says. I know who it is. We've observed these things. We've seen who has done this. That as professional fishermen, this is not a common thing that you would go out and toil all night and catch nothing. You just catch something. But not nothing. Christ was in control of this whole situation in Luke chapter 5. And guess what? In, Luke cha or in John chapter 21, Jesus is in complete control, setting up the entire thing. The same type of situation. But what I want to point out to you this morning is in Luke chapter 5, in verse 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. What does he mean? To throw a net onto people? What is he referring to? What is he speaking of? 
he's speaking of going and making disciples, going and sharing the gospel. He said, you have spent your life as a fisherman of catching these fish. Now you're going to spend your life going and catching men, sharing the gospel with them, making disciples. He basically says, look, here's the command. You just throw out a net, I'm going to bring the fish into it. He's going to be responsible for the catch. So this command to go and be a disciple maker, he says, your responsibility is just throw it out there. Nothing else. He is the one that produces the fruit from it. In John chapter 15, we previously studied this. John chapter 15, verse 16. John 15, and see some of you flipping back. John 15, back to the right. And if it's not highlighted or marked in your Bible, it's a great verse to get highlighted. John 15, verse 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, we already talked about the the pitfall of self-sufficiency of I got this. What if Peter and the guys had stopped and said, God in heaven, help us as we go out on this journey. We know we've been fishermen forever, but we need some food. We're hungry, or we need money, or whatever the situation is. But they didn't. They relied on their own resources. Jesus said, look, as you go out and you go to obey me, to serve me, to love me, whatever you need, ask. Ask. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, And all these other things will be provided unto you. Remember, Jesus is the one that provides the blessing. He's the one that brings it. So would you with me continue back to John chapter 21. I want you to see where where this comes up. How does this do with overcoming failure? I don't see anything here. I mean, not catching fish in the night, that's not really the failure. I mean, it might be in their minds. But there's a bigger thing going on here than just that. What we see in this text is the unwavering faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The unwavering faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 9. Starting in verse 9, we see, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Now, I'm going to come back to this, but this is interesting. Charcoal fire. Do you know how many times we see that word? Actually, in the Greek, how many times we see that elsewhere in the New Testament? How many times we read about a charcoal fire? You're like, I don't know, I'll just throw out some numbers. Survey says? It's actually one other time. Flip back to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I want you to see where it appears. John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 18, I believe. Look at it. John 18, verse 18. It says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Does anybody know what the context of John chapter 18 is? Jesus on trial. Peter has said, I will go with you even unto death. And Peter ends up outside warming himself with the enemy and denying Christ. 
Now, I haven't spoken to John about this, but I believe he intentionally put this word in here, charcoal fire, to bring us back to the previous time we had seen that. The only other time it's used, right there in John chapter 18. Why? Because we had a failure in John chapter 18. And then we see the overcoming failure is not because Peter had done something better, but because Christ is faithful. It's what Christ has done. The way to overcome failure is to understand that our Savior is faithful even when we are faithless. Look, here's the reality. I told you when I started this morning that I am scared to death of public speaking. I hate public speaking. Like, if there's ever an option where you're in a group and they're like, have one public speaker, you know, a person, I'm like, oh, I know, I mean, I'm not going up there. Before I come up here, I'm in the back over there, and I'm pleading with God, please allow your Holy Spirit to work in me, that I am going as an ambassador of yours. It is your word. It's you who's being put on display. Please, oh God, help me to articulate the truth. Follow me? So then the responsibility is given back to him. Lord, I am just a servant. I'm just one coming up here to speak your truth. Faithfulness. His faithfulness. He is faithful to his own word. Come back with me in this context. Let's, let's read it in John chapter 21. Now we know this charcoal fire refers back to Peter's failure. Let's look what it says. It says, Jesus said to them, says, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Now, this is weird because there's already fish on the grill. It's already being cooked. Do you think Jesus needed more fish that he wasn't able to supply? What have we already read in John's gospel? He was able to take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 plus women and children. He didn't need it. So why would he tell them, Bring some of your fish. What's the point here? What is he trying to show them? If you abide in him, you will bear much fruit. The same fish he had on there, I'm sure, is the same fish they're bringing. He's going, look, I am the one who supplies all this. I am the giver of this. Simply abide in me. And we read, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish. 153 of them. Uh, I was going to dare you to go and research this, but I really don't want you to waste your time. There are so many fascinations of people's imagination of why 153. I mean, all the way back to one of the early church fathers, Augustine, that completely allegorized. He said, well, the number seven is completion. If you multiply that by this and, and get it, and he ends up with the number 153. Crazy. There are other people who say, well, there was probably only 153 species of fish known at that time. So he was saying all of the fish, every kind. Do you know what we have in our Bible before us? There was a lot of fish. That's it. That's all we know. It was a lot of fish, 153 of them. As fishermen, they probably counted their catch. What did we come up with? We got 153 of them. And although we read there were so many, the net was not torn. That's important. Jesus said, abide in me. I'll abide in you, and you'll bear much fruit, and I will be with you till the ends of the world. Always. He's with you always. Never going to give up, never going to wear out, always going to be there, always going to be consistent, always being faithful. And then he invites them, come and have breakfast. 
because now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus has appealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus' faithfulness. If you are a Christian here this morning, understand this, you will fail. There will be failures in your life. But as a Christian, God will use those to help sanctify you, to make you more holy. That instead of looking at your failure, you need to look at his perfection. Instead of looking at your lack of faithfulness, you look to his faithfulness. When you do that, church, it should fuel your faithfulness. It's what causes you to say, man, I want to worship rightly. I want to serve rightly. I want to obey rightly. Because you go, he is faithful. He is faithful. He's not like an earthly father who sits there and wags his finger at you. Shame on you. You shouldn't have done that. Christ is always faithful. There's unwavering faithfulness in Christ. So how do you overcome failures? First, realize that failures are not meant to cripple your ability to move forward. They're not meant to cripple you. They're meant only to cripple your self-sufficiency. There are times I venture off and I say, I got this. I can do this. I am reminded in those times that I can do all things through Christ. He is the one that I'm to be dependent on. Secondly, failure should cause you to submit to Christ's rule and reign in your life. Look, when I give everything, just like we talked to those of you in, in class this morning, stewardship. If I understand God has created all things and that he's just given me some of that that I can steward, I can watch over on his behalf. Follow me? It's all his. He's created all. He owns it all. And now I'm just given some of it to watch over then no matter what happens, whatever situation, I know this is God. He's in control of every situation. He's in control of all these things. Same is true when failure comes into my life. God's still in control of my life. And he's still going to use that for his glory, for my good and his glory. But I no longer have to carry the weight. When I'm back there in the corner and I'm pleading and begging God, God, help your words to come out, to articulate the truth, and I come up here, I can stand confident that God is going to represent himself. Follow me? And I take that weight off myself once I start preaching of, God, this is yours. But if I stand in the back and I'm like, you say, hey, Pastor, how you doing? I'm like, I got this. Well, that'll be the funniest day for you. You said, I go, what just happened to our pastor? That'd be the saddest day. But it would be a fool on the stage absolute fool. But he is the one that is faithful. Thirdly, overcoming failure has to be fueled by Christ's faithfulness. The reason why I don't continue, why I'm not a dog that returns to its vomit, and I don't continue going back, is because even when I was the fool, Christ was faithful. And it's knowing his faithfulness that drives me towards him, that I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back to being the fool. I want to go towards Christ. And in this text, obviously, we saw from Luke chapter 5, part of our faithfulness that we're called to do is to be fishers of men. Fishers of men. To tell others the good news about Jesus Christ, that we have been commissioned to do that. 
And when I talk about failure, church, this is where it wraps into this. I've heard so many people come to me and say, Pastor, I think I said the wrong thing. The people didn't receive it. They rejected the truth about Christ. I think I failed. Follow me? It's not about our performance. It's about Christ's perfection. We're simply to throw the net out. He's the one that leads the fish in there. He's commanded us simply throw the net, cast the net out. And that's what we're commanded to do is throw it out. Don't be so concerned about, oh, I'm going to fail. It's about his faithfulness. Let him work through it. And of course, as we read all these things about overcoming failure and how it's about Christ's sufficiency, not our own, we realize these things only apply to the Christian. The person apart from Christ is the fool. The person apart from Christ continues to live in failure. They live a destructive life thinking somehow they're going to overcome these things in their own strength. Somehow they're going to stand before God on Judgment Day and they think somehow they'll be accepted. Maybe they just did enough good to be accepted. You know, Scripture says that is impossible. That every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that our God, though He is loving, is also just. And that He must punish sin. And if you think about it in the context of studying this entire book of John, why did Christ go to the cross? To pay that penalty. But the Bible says that though Christ went, that one died for all, that you must, you must respond to that truth. And that must be through repenting, turning from yourself and turning to Him, and receiving Christ. The Bible says you must be born again. It doesn't say you must be a churchgoer or a member of Lossy or Baptist or anything like that. It says you must be born again. You must know Christ and He must know you. And that's through faith. This morning, I encourage you, if you have not come to Christ, come to Him today. Know that even in our failings, He is always faithful. If you're a believer here this morning, be encouraged that we have a faithful Jesus. You know, as we look in this passage, and I'll close with this, next week, we're actually going to do part two of this, because we saw with that charcoal fire, John brings in this idea of Peter. And I believe, as I talked about that snippet of like a Marvel movie at the end, he's given us what happens with Peter. Like, what happens at the end? We know that Peter failed. What happens? And we're going to see that Peter overcomes failure by trusting in Christ, by submitting to Christ, by loving Christ. Let's pray together. Father, each of us here, if we were honest, can speak of how many times we have failed, how many times spiritually we have failed, that we've desired to do what is right and yet have done what is wrong. Father, as believers in Jesus Christ, those who have repented and received Christ by faith, we know that there is continual forgiveness in Christ. We know your word also tells us that we're not to continue in sin so that grace might abound. We're to flee from sin. Father, as we look at failures of biblical character, even Peter, we see it's not by Peter's might that he was able to produce anything good. It was by the faithfulness of Christ. It was about abiding in Christ. Father, I pray that for each of us this morning who are believers, that we would be encouraged that we have a Savior who is faithful. He's faithful even when we are faithless.
And it's that reality that would fuel us in worship and obedience. Father, we do pray for anybody who's here that has never bowed a knee and submitted to Christ, that your spirit would draw them today, that they would know you. Father, they would know this life of being a Christian and the hope of eternity that is in store for them. We pray this in Jesus' name.